Easter's upon us. Uh, as Tim said, Easter Sunday is going to look, uh, at this point, a lot like a lot like this, a lot like we're doing here. Uh, but for Good Friday, uh, we have some other plans. Now, a little bit of background. Um, Good Friday, as hopefully you know, is typically uh, a communion service. It's when we gather together to remember the cross. And the best way to remember the cross is through the Lord's table. Uh, that's what we've been instructed. It's what Jesus left with us, saying, uh, whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, the gathering part, though, has been, has been difficult for us this past year, obviously, uh, which is why we have not been uh, celebrating communion together uh, since about this time last year. We did try uh, once, kind of virtually, online, last year, Good Friday, uh, but frankly, it didn't quite uh, reflect uh, what we find in the Bible. Uh, by that, I mean, if you look in, in the way that uh, the communion meal, the Lord's table, is, uh, is taught about, um, there's always the preface that the church is gathered together. Um, I want to show you this, just so you can see. There's a little phrase in 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul uses twice, once in verse 18, once in verse 33, and he basically says, you do this when you come together as a church. That's the wording. When you, when you come together as a church, then you remember. You remember the cup. You remember the bread. You remember the essence of what Jesus did uh, to pay for your sins, and, and you rejoice. You remember and you rejoice. Um, we tried to do that online once. It, it, the coming together part was missing. So we haven't done it uh, since then. Uh, but as uh, an elder team, we, we really were trying to think about how we could do that for this Good Friday. And so uh, here's our, here are our plans. Uh, according to the public health orders, we are allowed to do uh, drive-in events, uh, up to 50 cars. And so on Good, Good Friday, we're going to do a drive-in Good Friday service. In fact, we're going to do multiple services starting at 9 a.m. in the morning. And um, the whole purpose is that we can come together as a church and that we can remember and celebrate. So picture about 50 cars in the parking lot uh, facing the front of the building. Uh, picture me and a small worship team up on the roof of the building. Don't worry, we'll have, you know, railings and tethers. We'll be safe. And uh, we'll have an FM transmitter so that we can come in. Uh, as you come in with your, your vehicles, you'll get uh, a self-contained, uh, sanitized communion elements that come in like a, a juice and then wafer together. Kids will get um, some coloring pages, some treats. Windows up, we'll go to your spot. We'll kind of be packed in, but far enough apart. Masks off in your car. You can sing. Turn on the FM transmitter. We'll be transmitting. You can hear the worship. You can hear a message. It'll be a little bit of a shorter message. And we will partake of communion together. We will gather together, remember, and celebrate the cross, and um, my hope is that it will be a very meaningful time for us, as it should be. So a couple of things about this, um, this drive-in service. Uh, number one, we will, we will not be live streaming this drive-in service, and uh, a couple of reasons for that. Number one, uh, as I just said, the whole point of the communion meal is that we're together as a church, and that this is this is as close as we can get together right now, unfortunately, as we are able. So we're going we're gonna to do that. So the emphasis really is that you get in your cars and you come and we're together. Uh, the second reason is I'm concerned, I think we should all be a bit concerned, that after a year of doing online gatherings that we've come to expect the worship of God to be fairly convenient for us, which is not really our fault. I mean, it just is more convenient. You're probably watching in your pajamas, you probably just finished breakfast or are finishing breakfast. Uh, maybe you're watching this at another time during the day when it, when it works for you. Um, it's just become more convenient to, to tune in, to gather in a sense, uh, as a church. The only people for whom this is less convenient, I think, is parents with young kids 
This is not convenient at all because the kids are around you the whole time. Uh, if you're watching this, you're probably like in a closet with the door closed or in the bathroom with the door locked, just trying to get some, some peace and quiet. But for most of us, this has become more convenient and that should worry us because uh, the worship of God, um, it was never intended for it to be a convenient thing. Uh, I want to direct our attention to uh, something that King David said way back in the day. This was a time when he had a desire to worship God, to build an altar, to make a sacrifice, and he was looking for a place to do it. And uh, there was a threshing floor, a nice flat place where they would beat out the wheat. And the person who owned the threshing floor said to David, hey, just take it. Like, build your altar. I want you to have it. I'm I'm excited for you to worship God. And look at uh, King David's response. This is 2 Samuel 24, 24. He said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. What he's saying there is that part of the nature of worship is that it costs us something. It costs us time or resources or, or, or whatever it may be. That that's part of the way that we're demonstrating our genuine love for, for the Lord. Now, right now, we have been unable to really gather together in the way that we want. We're, we're frustrated by that. Um, we hope that will change. We pray that that will change very soon. But this is an opportunity where we can gather together as the church, and I would encourage everyone who is part of the church to take advantage of it. In fact, I would push a little further um, and say, uh, ask yourself the question, what does it say about my faith if I am not willing or interested in, in doing this, in getting in the car, putting clothes on, like get doing all, going through all the, the hassle of coming here? What, what would that say about the nature of my faith and affection for the Lord? We should see this as an opportunity to genuinely remember and rejoice. And so uh, I'm hoping that everyone will take advantage of it. A couple of notes. If you don't have access to a vehicle, uh, sign up anyway. Everyone's got to sign up so we know who's coming. But sign up anyway. We have options for that. Uh, If you are, for medical reasons, you have to isolate at home. You're just not able to go out. You're not out driving around at all. Then email us and we will provide a a private video link so you can still be part of it. But again, my hope is that we will all uh, be together on this. So, that was just an announcement. That wasn't the sermon. Uh, we're going to get on to the sermon. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get to our Easter series. Let me pray. Uh, Lord God, thank you for Easter. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we can remember and celebrate. It's an opportunity uh, to put a focus on something that, sh- that should be part of our, our, our hearts, uh, motivating us the whole year round if we are followers of Christ. Um, but I pray right now, as we turn our attention to what it means to be alive in Christ, uh, Lord, that um, our hearts would be stirred. I pray, God, this would be a season where we recapture our sense of uh, excitement about the worship of God and, and where things like convenience and ease are not at all part of our calculations, Lord. We would just, we would just want people to know that, that you are the focus of our life and we would want you to know that, Lord. And so I pray that this season would be one where we as a church really do come together in as much as we are able and that you, you see the real uh, cry of our hearts, uh, cries of thankfulness and joy. And I pray right now, Lord, shape us, Lord, more, more fully as we look to uh, the text of Scripture and to help us know you more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our sermon series, uh, as you may have guessed, is, is called Alive. Uh, it's called that because uh, the Easter story is really all about, I mean, the climax of it is the life of Jesus, the resurrected life of Jesus and the hope that that brings. But this series is is not just uh, to tell the story of Easter. Uh, it's really to look at the meaning and, and to think deeply of, of what it means to be truly alive, which I think is important for us because 
by and large, I don't know that we as human beings think a lot about being alive. Uh, it's just kind of like a fish in water. We just are alive. We just, we breathe. Uh, ever since we remember we've been alive, it's just kind of part of, part of who we are. We don't really think about it until, until we have a brush with death. Uh, one of the most common reactions for people who have had near-death experiences is that they have a, a newfound uh, love of life, appreciation for life. Uh, this happens uh, to me in a small way. Maybe this kind of thing happened to you. Uh, I was down at the, the lights on the bypass, about to turn left into the NW. This was like last year. And the car in front of me was in the intersection. Light turned yellow, and he turned left to go towards the NW. And a car went through the probably red light by that point and just hammered him from the side, T-boned him, metal everywhere, this you know, horrendous noise, jumped out of my car to see what was going on, see if everyone was okay, calling 911. I couldn't figure out my phone wasn't working. I was trying to tell them what was going on. I realized the Bluetooth was still connected, so I had to run back into my car and talk on the speaker. Got back out. All the airbags were out. Seemed like everyone was okay, but for the rest of the day, man, I was, I was jittery. I was just thinking to myself, you know, one car length away, that could have been me, one wrong turn. I would have been in a car accident, possibly dead, if it had just been a little bit different. I was very thankful to be alive. I got home. Gave Dawn a big, extra-long hug. She, she didn't enjoy it. It was it just, but for me, I was really thankful. I was just appreciative. God, thank you for the life you've given me. And look, the Christian message it has always been about life. We, as the people of God, if you're a believer, should be thankful for the life that God has given us. Because the good news of Jesus is that He died in our place, took the penalty of sin, then was resurrected, and then we have the same promise of that life. That when we die, it won't be the end. We will. We will live forever in heaven, which is great news. But the message of the gospel actually points to an even more startling truth about life and death. Because what it says is that apart from God, even now we are not actually as alive as we think we are. In fact, if we are going to really understand and appreciate the life that Jesus brings, we're going to first, first have to grapple with the fact that the Bible doesn't just talk about a future death, it talks about a present death. It says that right now, the thing that defines us is that we are already dead, apart from God. So we're going to look at this, and our text today is going to be Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Welcome to turn there. We'll have it up on the screen. Just three verses, not like Esther, not whole chapters. And we're going to look at um, the the insights that are given in terms of the nature of what it means to be human, what this deadness means that I'm, that I'm talking about. So a little context, uh, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in Ephesus, the church there, and um, he's really writing to them about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have faith. So here are our verses for today. It begins this way, and you, you Christian, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's our text. Uh, we're going to work through it in three points, all about uh, life and death. Here's the first one. We are all dead in sin. Before faith, we are all dead in sin. And I want to begin by focusing on the all there. Uh, I say that because in, in the text, uh, at the beginning, the you that, that Paul is talking about, and you were dead, is plural. So he's talking to a group of people. But it's not just the church, really, that he's addressing. 
Uh, if you look in verse 3, he widens the scope of who he's talking about. Verse 3 uh, says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In the Greek there, it just kind of says like the rest. Like the rest of all people all over the world, so not just the church, but everyone. All human beings, this is what was true of us. We, we were dead. His main point is that everyone suffers from the same condition, which is deadness. Look again at verse 1. He says simply, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So what does that, what does that mean, we were, we were dead? Well, a couple things it doesn't mean. It, um, it's not just an expression, because we use that expression a lot. If someone's really bugging us, our brothers, we might say, oh, you're dead, meaning we're going to clobber you. doesn't mean we're actually going to kill them, hopefully. Um, sometimes we say to someone who we're in relationship with, and, and, and we feel like it's a breakup or whatever it is, you're dead to me. Like, you, what you've done is so grievous that now it's like you're not alive. So it's, it's not that they actually are dead, but I'm going to treat them as if they are dead. That's not what this is talking about. It's not an expression like that. It's also not uh, talking about just a future reality because uh, there is that, that wording we use for those who are on death row, like those who've been sentenced to death. We say um, they are dead men walking. There's a movie, right? Dead man walking, which means this prisoner is alive right now, but because of the sentence of death hanging over them, it's as like they're as good as dead. It's just a matter of time before they will be dead. And that is true of humanity, that because of our sin, that, that we are going to get the consequence of, of death. We all die in the end. But notice, um, Paul here isn't saying you will be dead. He's saying past tense to the Christian, you were dead. Or to the person who doesn't yet have faith, he would say you are dead. So again, dead in, in what sense? Well, what he means is spiritually dead. He means human beings, apart from God, are physically alive but spiritually dead. Now, for some, that may not seem like that big a deal. If you're not someone who is really interested in, in spiritual things, uh, you may think to yourself, well, that doesn't sound that bad. But we should note the seriousness with which the scriptures take spiritual deadness. In fact, the best way to understand the, the gravity of the situation is to compare spiritual deadness with physical deadness. Because we know it, we're more familiar with what it means to be physically dead. Uh, physically dead people are, are no longer there. They are no longer there. It's just their body remains. They're not, it's not just they're unconscious. They are gone. Their bodies are um, not responsive to any sort of stimuli. They have no power to act. The body is, is lifeless and hopeless. I remember one of the first times that I was at a funeral with an open casket. It was someone that uh, I knew, I knew them to be full of life. They were a young person and um, always active. And then when I came to the, to the viewing, I just was struck by the lifelessness of the body. They were completely cut off from, from the life that they once had. And that is the same when it comes to spiritual deadness, that we, we are cut off spiritually, cut off from God who is the source of life the source of hope, the source of joy. And in fact, if we look through our passage, we're going to see how it is that Paul explains the nature of this deadness. So again, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So to be in sin means that we have turned our back on God. 
that we are disobedient, that we've, that we've missed the mark. And in the beginning, like way in the beginning with Adam and Eve, um, we, we see that sin actually caused death originally. That Adam and Eve, they were, I mean, they were totally alive. When God made them, he not just, didn't just make them alive physically, but he breathed his spirit into them. They were truly alive, alive physically, alive spiritually. And God warned them, look, if you disobey, if you eat the fruit of this tree, then you will die. The interesting thing is, is that they didn't actually die right away. They ate the fruit, and physically they didn't seem to change at all, but there was a change, a significant change. In that moment, they died spiritually. And you can see that because of the difference in the way they interacted with each other and with God. They felt shame, they felt guilt. Eventually, they died physically, but that spiritual deadness took place immediately, and that is the thing that has been passed down from human generation to generation, all along the way, all the way to today. Just like genetic defects are passed down, congenital heart disease or, or cancer, it's just something that's in us when we are born. That's, that's the nature of our spiritual deadness. In fact, you see it in verse 3. Paul, Paul says the very thing. He says, we were by nature... Children of wrath, meaning um, we were not born neutral. That's, that's the prevailing wisdom of the day, that, that children are born neutral, and that they kind of choose good or bad, and that impacts, you know, kind of who they are and how they are. That we do make choices in our life, but our nature is set from when we are born. We are born already spiritually dead, unable to respond to the goodness of God, unable to be obedient. This actually is a much better a description of, of children than what the world would say. I mean, children, we know they don't have to be taught to be greedy or selfish or impatient. They just are those things. It, it's hardwired into them. They need to be taught to be gracious and kind because there's a deadness, a spiritual deadness in them. It's true of all of us. Think of it this way. We aren't liars because we lie. We lie because we are already liars. In our hearts. Jesus says it this way. He kind of unpacks this. Look at Matthew 15. He says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. What he's saying is all of those, all those things are already in us because of the, the dead, corrupt, Wicked hearts that we are born with. So when it comes out of us, we're just acting out of, our, out of our nature. This really is essential for us to understand because it helps us to understand what it means to be human, the, the, the essential problem of humanity. It explains why we follow um, foolish, ungodly, destructive influences in our lives. You see that also in the text. Look back in verse 1. Paul says, We follow the course of this world, by which he means godless philosophies and ideologies that lead us farther and farther away from God. And he says also we follow the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, which, which means we are susceptible to demonic influence. So why do we do that? Why can't we tell the difference? Well, because we don't have the capacity on our own. We don't have the capacity to really distinguish the difference between what is truly helpful, what is truly godly, and what is going to lead us further and further astray. This also explains why we can't seem to control our behavior. Why we struggle all our lives, many of us, with, with anger, with impatience, 
why we hurt people with our words, even the people that we love, why we have trouble not eating too much or not drinking too much. All of the things that we do with our, our bodies are explained when you realize that our hearts are, are dead to what is good, what is actually good for us. Uh, again, in verse two, Paul says it this way. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. He's saying we are, we are spiritually and morally hopeless without Jesus, and so that's why, that's why our lives look the way that they look. That's why we engage in these kind of destructive practices. And it's not just that we've made some mistakes or that we haven't quite measured up to God's standard. What he's saying here is that on our own, we have no ability to even try to, to, to any measure of righteousness, to attain any goodness in our life. There's a little passage in Romans where Paul is talking about the, the difference between what it means to be um, alive or, or dead spiritually. But he uses the word uh, the flesh. When we are dead spiritually, it's like we're living in the flesh, just to start our bodies. So look at what he says. Here's Romans 8, uh, beginning in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see the decisive nature of that language. He's saying we are so morally and spiritually dead, there's no way for us to do anything good in God's eyes apart from him. Which may cause some of us to push back a bit. Because you may be thinking to yourself, you know, Matt, there, there's a lot of people out there who don't, you know, follow Jesus, and yet they're pretty good people. In fact, there's people I know who are great people. They do tons of good work. Involved in charities, giving money, building hospitals overseas, like tons of, of good things. They're just, they're just nice people. In fact, they're a lot nicer than some of the people I know who go to church. So how do we... How do we understand, how do we reconcile that experience with this, this teaching that every human being on their own cannot do any good thing in God's eyes apart from faith in Jesus? Well, here's how we understand it. If someone's heart is dead towards God, then that deadness taints all the other good things they might possibly do. Let me explain it this way. Imagine a relationship husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. Uh, think of what happens if there is infidelity, if, if uh, someone cheats on the other person in that relationship. See, that moment of betrayal will taint every other thing in that relationship. I mean, anything good in that relationship will now be seen through that, through that wrong, through that evil. Think of it this way. If, if the boyfriend was talking to his girlfriend and he'd been caught cheating, sleeping with someone else, Imagine him saying to her, look, honey, I'm, I'm sorry. It was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. I, I'm wrong. Please, you know, forgive me. Take me back. Look, remember all the good things that were in our relationship. Think of all the good times we had. You know that I, that I love you. You've seen that I love you. You, you can't tell me this one mistake is going to ruin everything. To which if she's smart, she will say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. That this, this act of betrayal, it does ruin everything. Because all the other good things now, I, I realized that in fact, your heart was not fully devoted to me. You were, not, you were not true, you're not trustworthy. I can't help but see everything else in light of that act of, of betrayal. Really what she would be realizing is that the, 
The love they had wasn't really love. It, it was dead. It was selfish. It, it, was, it was wrong. Which is why it's so difficult to bring reconciliation and restoration in a marriage where infidelity has happened. It's not impossible. With the power of God, it is. But it, it is like raising the dead in a sense. And it also helps to explain why those who have never confessed faith in Jesus, never worshipped God, if you think about it this way, they've broken the first commandment, which is to have no other gods but God. Once that first commandment is broken, then every other thing in our lives is seen through that, that sin. It, it's tainted by that one sin. See, the truth that we need to recognize is that in our sin, we aren't just in the doghouse with God. We, we haven't just offended him slightly in some way. We are, we are in the morgue, utterly unable to respond to him in any good way. The challenge with this, though, is that it doesn't really feel that way. And we look around, everyone seems pretty alive. So this is our second point. We need to wrestle with this. First, we are all dead in sin. But secondly, we are the living dead. The living dead. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a movie called Night of the Living Dead, which I haven't seen. Probably no one should ever see it. But it's a zombie movie. And there's so many zombie movies out there because we have this fascination with this creepy connection between someone who's kind of dead and kind of alive. And we actually see that kind of tension, not that it's creepy exactly, but we see it in our text because Paul is speaking about how dead we are and yet he's using words to, to describe kind of life that we're living. Uh, I'm going to highlight them back in the passage again. Look at, so he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, which sounds like someone who's alive because they're walking around. And then later on in verse 3, it says, among whom we all once lived, in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. All of those things seem like things that living people do. And in fact, there's other parts in the Bible where uh, people are described as if they are the living dead. Uh, there's a couple times, uh, one with Jesus in Matthew 8, um, someone comes up and says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but my dad, I want to wait till he dies and, and you know, bury him and settle his accounts. And look at Jesus' response. He says, follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus isn't saying that this guy's dad was physically dead. He's saying he was spiritually dead. And yet alive physically. 1 Timothy 5.6 says, She who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Both of those verses, what you get is a picture of people living their lives, even enjoying their lives, indulging. But from God's point of view, they're actually dead. Here's another uh, Another picture of this, probably the most, um, the most emphatic picture that Jesus makes. Here he's speaking to the Pharisees. This is in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Notice the, the huge discrepancy, the difference between what the Pharisees looked like on the outside and what they were actually like on the inside. I mean, if you were to ask anyone uh, in that day and say, who, who has spiritual life? Who in our community has spiritual life and righteousness? Everyone probably would have said the Pharisees. I mean, they're the ones who teach the law of God. Of course, they got to be closest to God. They must have life. They looked like it, beautiful, righteous on the outside. But Jesus is saying from God's point of view, on the inside, they were dead. 
They were unclean. Why? Because they were disobeying the law of God. Their heart was cold towards God. They were dead inside. We sometimes use that expression, that we feel dead inside. It's usually, it's usually after a, like a traumatic experience or in the midst of an emotional crisis, and we'll say we, we feel dead inside. And that's, I mean, that's a serious thing. We need to take that seriously and, and respond to people with, with love and care and, and give them the help they need. But, but what Paul is talking about here is actually worse than that. Because most human beings don't actually realize that they are dead spiritually. I mean, most people in our, in our city would, would not think to themselves that, that, they, are, that they are dead spiritually. They, they would feel alive. That, that's, the, that's the deceptive nature of sin itself, that we don't see the seriousness of it for what it is. People walk around thinking everything's fine. Every, I, I feel great. It, it's like someone walking around with an undiagnosed cancer. Eventually, it will be found out. Eventually, it will present itself just as spiritual deadness will present itself in our lives, sadly, for some of us, it's, it's, it's too late by that point. We've reached the end of our life and never recognized that we were never truly alive and have no hope of life to look forward to. See, this is the reason why in this series about life, we're starting with death. Because until we truly see this and understand ourselves rightly, we will, we will not be able to access the hope of God. The thing about human beings, we vastly overestimate our ability to find out what true living is all about. I mean, there's tons of shows on Netflix streaming about, look, this is, man, if you want a real vibrant life, here's what you do. Tons of books on that. And most of the time, what's their advice? Man, if you really want to feel alive, you, you need to know yourself. You need to go on a journey of, of self-exploration, self-discovery. If you really can, can figure out your passions, the things that you love, and then orchestrate your life around those things, then, then you will be living. It never occurs to us that, that we could be the problem rather than the solution. Which is odd, because the one thing that remains constant in all of the, the difficulties and disappointments and failures of our life is us. Like, we are the common denominator. The story of Easter, refreshingly, hopefully, leads us in the opposite direction. Not further into ourselves, but further into the one who is the author of life. The one who gives life. Jesus, the Christ. This is our third point. We can be truly alive in Christ. We are all dead. We are all the living dead. Three, we can be truly alive in Christ. Now, we're really going to spend um, the rest of our series looking at what it means to have life in Christ. Uh, in fact, next week, we're going to look at the last half of this uh, section in Ephesians, which is all about life in Christ rather than death and sin. But I wanted just at the end here to focus on one key aspect of the life that is available in Jesus. And so to do that, I'm going to read the, just the next couple of verses. So remember, the end of our passage uh, went this way. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now all of this is based upon the Easter story. I mean, 
the, the, Easter, the hope of the Easter message. Jesus died uh, in our place on the cross. Uh, his death nullified the curse of sin and his resurrection then meant that he conquered death and meant that if we have faith in him, we also would have the hope of life after we die. All of that is true. All of that is fantastic. But notice for Paul here, that's not primarily what he was talking about because the verbiage there is past tense. He's saying to the Christian, those who have faith in Jesus, you were made alive. You're already alive. Paul is saying, even though nothing has changed about you on the outside, on the inside, there has been a fundamental renewal at the core of your being. Instead of being spiritually dead, now in Christ, you're spiritually alive. That is the essence of life according to the Bible. That is the essence of our, of our hope. In fact, that's, that was always the message that Jesus brought when he came to earth and when he was doing his ministry. He was always teaching people about the kingdom of God where we can find access to true life and hope and joy. There was a time, uh, I don't know if you remember, when, when one of the Pharisees, uh, Nicodemus, came to Jesus and was just trying to understand this, this new message that Jesus was speaking. And he was asking Jesus about the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, look, to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus was so confused, right? He said, what do you... What do you mean born again? Like, am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? What? He didn't understand. He was basically saying, look, I'm already alive. Why would I be born again? And look at Jesus' response. This is John 3, verse 6. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Th that is the beginning of the hope for all of humanity, being born of the Spirit by the power of God. Not that, not that we choose God, and that then because of our faith, God gives us the reward of life. No, remember, we're in the morgue. We're cadavers. We, we can't choose God. We can't respond in any way. The hope of the gospel is that the Spirit of God makes us alive by his power, by the grace of God, even though we were dead in sin. And that once we are alive, then we can respond to the hope and the grace of God and express our faith in Jesus. Nothing good will happen in our lives until we are alive spiritually, which is exactly what God does through the power of his spirit, which is why all glory goes to God for our salvation. And now for those who have faith in Jesus, everything's flipped. So before Paul was saying, remember before faith, you thought you were alive, but you were actually dead. And that deadness was gonna reveal itself by the end of your life. You were gonna die and, and die forever in eternal death. But now, now even though you are in bodies that are perishable, like we all know, they're, they're, they're decaying. They're not going to last another 80 years. Even though there's, we're clothed in this body of death, we actually have life. And the life, the spiritual life within us, that is the thing that will transform us. That we will be made new. We will be resurrected just as Jesus was. That is what it means to be truly alive. Spiritual life given to us by God through the Holy Spirit the power then in us to respond to the goodness and grace and hope of God right now and then the assurance that we will have life forever even though we're going to die physically. This is the hope of the Easter story, the hope of the gospel. And the whole point of this passage, really there's, there's two reasons I think why Paul is writing this. 
two groups of people in a sense. Paul's writing this for one group of people who don't yet have faith. And that may be you. You may not have ever expressed faith in Jesus. Maybe you've been interested, but you haven't, you haven't actually done that yet. The call of this passage then is to see your life for what it is. For what God says it is. Not, not thriving, not full of promise, but dead and hopeless. Spiritually dead. In fact, this passage is, is a warning uh, it's, it's like an alarm bell. It's like in the ICU when there's a patient and their heart stops and all the, the chimes go off and, and they call code blue or call whatever code and everyone comes running and they bring the paddles, they bring, they bring adrenaline. They, they, everyone all of a sudden is focused on this patient because they're flatlining. They're, they're, this patient is right on the brink of life and death and it's the most important thing in that moment. That's what this passage is saying to us. For those of us who don't yet have faith, God is saying, look, the, there won't always be more time. That now is the time to receive the life that God gives. And the way to do that is simply to cry out to God in prayer. To, to hear the voice of Jesus. And to heed the, the tug of the Spirit. Look at the words of Jesus. Look at what he says. John 5, 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The hope for each of us is that we recognize that we are dead without God and that we receive the gift of, of life from the Spirit. And to do that, I would just invite you, you just need to talk to God. You, you need to pray and ask him to, to forgive you of your sin. Even just the act of prayer is, is evidence that God is at work. And I would encourage you, confess your sin, believe that Jesus died for you and and you can have hope that your life will begin now and last into eternity. And if you, if you do pray that prayer, I would ask you, please contact us. We'd love to walk with you. That's the whole point of the church is that we help each other to, to walk out and, and live out our faith in a community. So that's the one group. The second group is, is most explicitly stated here. He's speaking to the church, those who have faith. And in that sense, this passage is a call to remember and rejoice. Look at verse 12. Just a few verses after what we've been looking at. Here's what Paul says. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What Paul is, is kind of saying is just remember where you were. Almost as if in this passage now we're having a near-death experience. We're remembering how close we were to being completely hopeless our entire lives and not even realizing where we were. He's saying you could have been cut off, but, but God worked in your life. And because of that, you have every reason for joy. We need to remember. Remember our hopelessness before Jesus and then rejoice in all that Jesus has done for us. My hope is that as a church, that this will really be bubbling up in our hearts and our minds this whole Easter season that we will be looking for opportunities to be thankful and glad for what Christ has done. And that when we do gather together Good Friday, maybe like this on Easter Sunday, that there will be evident joy in our hearts because we realize how much God has done and what it cost him to do it. So let me pray for us now and then we're gonna rejoice together in worship. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this reminder. Reminder that on our own, we are dead and hopeless. I pray, Lord, for those listening 
that have not expressed faith. I pray, Lord Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would move in their hearts, help them to see the reality of this truth in their lives. And Lord, um, bring them, please, to to the point of confessing their need for you, confessing their sin, expressing faith in you, Jesus. I pray there would be many, many lives impacted through this Easter season. And I pray also, Lord, for, for those of us who already have faith by your grace, Lord, I just pray that, that we would overflow in joy, that we would be thankful, that we would be shaken, in a sense, about the reality of our sin and how close we were to being totally hopeless in our life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the fact that you gave yours so that we might have life now spiritually and have the hope of life forever, both physically and spiritually. I pray, Lord, you would receive our praise and worship and it would honor you greatly. In Jesus' name, amen.